Microphones are on, and uh, if you have questions, thoughts, and I got tons of stuff I can say, so, but I'll give you guys first swing at it. Okay, I'll start it off. Oh, we had the hand? Oh, okay. In the nick of time, Greg. I'll come up with something. (laughs) (laughs) I assume it's fair to say that the ten servants, one way you could divide the ten servants from the citizens are believers and unbelievers. That the ten servants, whatever else they are, and only include believers. That's one possibility. The other possibility would be, um, because here's the challenge, right? If you don't obey your master, are you his servant? is the very, the, the debate is, are these believers and unbelievers, are these professing believers and professing unbelievers? That, that's the discussion. The other possibility would be, this is the visible church. These are those people who would identify themselves as servants. Um, and that's the debate. And whether or not this guy, this particular guy, is a believer and represents, and, and there is a category for that. First Corinthians, uh, the one who builds, uh, and, and what, disti- what distinguishes this from the man who's vivisected in chapter 12 is the servant in chapter 12 not only doesn't obey, he negatively disobeys. He gets drunk, he beats the slaves. There's none of that here. So if you want to make the case that this is the, uh, the one who's, according to Paul, builds on the altar with wood, hay, and straw, and it burns up, not with precious metals, this one will escape as though through flames. There is a category for that. He could be that. Um, if he is, he's barely getting by. He's against him is he's wicked, he's condemned, he has not ruling with Christ. He's not having any stewardship. I will grant there's a sliver that he gets by. In the parallel passage in Matthew, he's shut outside in outer darkness. So all I'm saying is we can't be confident this guy is saved. Luke may allow for that, and I'm fine with that, because Luke clearly doesn't include him in the evil citizens who are slaughtered in front of the king. We just don't know his fate. He loses his mind, and then what happens? We don't know. So it's possible some guys like this get through, I would not say all guys like this get through. There's too many other texts that plenty of times when people evidence themselves as, I'm not going to do what you say, I'm not your servant. Okay, Jesus, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, so clearly you don't love me. And Paul, if anyone doesn't have love for the Lord, let him be accursed. I'm sorry, was I head off your question? Clearly the citizens have to be unbelievers. Yep. And so it just stands to reason that the other opposing group would be the would be believers, but I suppose it could certainly be those who identify themselves as the church and those who don't. Yeah, yeah, the question is simply, are we seeing this from God's perspective or man's? In man's perspective, we got those people who identify themselves as Christians. We hope and trust and believe they're Christians, but we know from first John, they went out from us to show they're never of us, for if they were would have been of us, they would have remained. There are people in the visible church who prove ultimately not to be Jesus' sheep. So from man's perspective, there's hairs sewn in among with the wheat. And uh, we don't try to weed it out when something evidences himself as a tear through unrepentant sin. We may excommunicate them, but that's about it. We don't go hunting for tares in the, in the wheat. But from God's perspective, there's those who are his people and those who aren't, and there's no mixing or anything. So that, simply the question, are we looking at this from which vantage point? And, and an argument can be made for both, and I'm not going to get dogmatic on either one. Um, just, just following up on that, yeah. uh, 
This parable is different from the others two. They were each given a minor. The master gave them something, yeah. like gave them spiritual life or something like this, supposed mm -hmm. to grow that, whereas in other parables they were told, you know, he went off and be faithful while he's gone. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any difference. No, no, it's, it certainly might. And um, so if you're viewing the mind as spiritual gifts, then that would strengthen the argument of this being a believer. Um, on the flip side, you could argue, well, God's given an endowment to everybody. He's given you health, he's given you intellect, he's given you certain blessings, um, he's apportioned a measure of grace to everybody. I mean, the simple fact that we're, we don't go to hell upon conception is grace. Um, so, sure. Linda Chisholm has the answer. Ha! No, I have two questions. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Are you going to bring up Archelaus? No. Oh, good. Good. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I understand this is a parable. So when it says that he went into a far country to receive the kingdom, so typically it's the reverse of that. They receive the kingdom where they are, like David, because that way it's confirmed with all the citizens mm -hmm. that they are the king over this yeah. area. So is that is it said that way more or less to just... Assert it's, that it, it is Jesus going away and coming back. Well, I think back. it's said that way because under the Roman rule, that is what you do. I didn't, one of my commitments in exposition is that Luke's going to tell us what we need to know. We know from Josephus there's a historical event that happened about 20 years before Jesus said this that models this almost perfectly. And I don't think we need that to understand this, but it does make it clear that Jesus isn't just making a scenario up. So Herod the Great in 4, no, 20 B.C. or 40 B.C. becomes king under Caesar over the area of Israel. When he dies, he gives his kingdom, breaks it into three to his three sons, but each of them has to go to Rome to petition Caesar to become fully, because it's not really his authority, it's Caesar, so he, can't, he can suggest his sons get it, but Caesar has to say, okay. So Archelaus who was um, ruler over like Israel and Judea area, Archelaus has to go in 4 AD to Jerusalem, I mean to, to Rome, to become king. But the Jews so hated him that they sent a delegation after him to petition to, that he not become king. So with that background, that's the practice in the day. And so Jesus is picking a, 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 a plot device that isn't like, when on earth would that happen? But under Rome and League, anyone who wants to be a ruler of a sub-kingdom has got to get it from the Caesar. So Archelaus goes and appeals to Augustus and gets made king. I just don't think that that's necessary to understand Luke. It does help make it clear that what Jesus is describing has at least some near referent so that people are like, oh, you know. But um, that's, that's the pattern. Under Israel, yeah, you're made king in the land by God. So I think this is the scenario under the parallel would be someone under Roman rule is going to a far land to be made a king, to receive a kingdom, something like that. In Jesus' case, he's going to heaven to receive a kingdom, not Caesar, and then the, there the analogy breaks down. So that's one question. But just, well... Can oh, you no, that's it? half a question. Okay. <laughs> well, because you caused another one. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, okay, but I mean, just the very fact that this person is going there, I mean, it's not like it's, an, like you said, it's not an election. I mean, they're mm -hmm. going there to receive this. So this delegation really, because, I mean, it's going to happen. Well, actually, in Archelaus's case, the delegation had some effect. Augustus let him be the ruler of the region, but he withheld the title of king from him. He gave him some other title. 
a lesser title. So actually, there was enough listening to the Jews who despised him. And that basically, from Rome's point of view, the Israelites were constantly rebelling, constantly a problem. And so there's this sort of, okay, well, you guys settle down. We're not going to settle down. Okay, he won't be your king. He'll be your regent or whatever. Um, you get some lesser title. He's functionally still got the kingdom. But yeah, yeah, uh, God's not getting elected. But in the Roman Empire, citizens have some right to, to protest. Caesar took into account what they said, even if he didn't weigh it very heavily. Um, so. Okay. okay, so the second thing. Um, okay, so in verse uh, 26. Okay, so it's talking about... Hang on, let me get... Okay, so then it's or 24, I guess. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away. And they said, so in the notes you had that it was the servant's objection, mm-hmm. but really it was the, it doesn't say the servant objected. It says the group, it says they yep. said he already has 10. Here's why I think it's the servants. And, and, and there's some debate among commentators. So if you follow the flow of the narrative, um, you get to verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. So all ten of the servants are there. The people who aren't there are the citizens because they have to get summoned. So unless you want to invent another category, other servants other than the ten, he's just dealt with each of the ten. We know they're there because the dude, the guy with ten manas is there. So is it possible other servants, other than the servants who are given 10 minas, are saying it as well? It's possible. They aren't ever mentioned. So it's some form of household servants. It's not the citizens, because they have to get summoned in verse 27. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here. Well, they're not here. So who else would you suggest it is? Well, no, I wasn't thinking it was the citizens. I was just, I mean, you... It just seemed like you were saying it was the one who he took it away from was objecting, but this says they said. I think think it's probably the nine servants and maybe some other attending servants who went and got them, because somebody went and got the servants, right? Um, So I'd say it's the household servants, this this guy's servanture, that's a word, um, who are saying this in surprise. And they're surprised at the liberality and they're surprised at the... um, Grace. He's given even more to this guy. He's given 10 cities. Now you're going to give him this guy's last mina? Absolutely. Because if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. And on the other hand, you're like, oh, this poor guy, all he has is one mina. Tough. He was unfaithful. Take it from him. No. You know, it's, it's, God's kingdom doesn't work that way. There's no like runner up prizes. Um, yes. Well, they're not the citizens because the citizens have to be summoned. And we know at least the bystanders are comprised of the ten servants, because they got summoned. Could there be additional servants? Sure there could. But it's not the citizens. It's not the enemies. Some have even suggested, because in the Greek there aren't clear um, quotation marks, some have even suggested that 25 is the people listening to Jesus interrupting. Possible, but unlikely. But some have actually suggested, some commentators even suggested that, that as Jesus tells this, those who are listening go, Lord, the they references all the way back to verse 11, in other words. Unlikely, but possible. Poss- grammatically possible, unlikely. But um, 
So, yeah, you can make the they whoever you want. They're not the enemies. This isn't a wicked response. We're not to read this as corrupt. I read one commentator who tried to suggest that. This is, I think, just shock and surprise. And, but Lord, he already has 10. You know, oh, I know. I'm telling you, whoever is faithful, they'll be faithful much. He'll be given more. That's, that's the point. It's this, the, the objection isn't wicked. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't take them as the, as the corrupt. I just, um, I guess I was having a difficult time making the connection that the bystanders were the servants, but in the context, it, it, it does seem like that may be. Well, at least true. the servants are part of it because they're there. Mm-hmm. Whether other people are there, well, sure, by implication, somebody had to go get the servants or some. I don't it's know. just, at least yeah. in our culture today, a bystander is generally somebody that is really not engaged necessarily. They're just in the background watching this unfold, watching whatever mm-hmm. unfold. And a bystander is a bystander. You know, they rarely. Right. You know, they, they might speak up and say something, but they're not really part of the narrative necessarily. Right. right. Well, I think the fact that they're not even identified is really they put the ball on the tee. Look at all these sports metaphors. They put the ball on the tee so that Jesus can then give his... Is that, is that football? No, no, basketball. No, basketball. Basketball. Gotcha. Right. Um, and uh, they, set up, they set up for Jesus to give the, the ethic... Right? In verse, I mean, really, the only reason he responds with the moral of the story is because they, they tee it up for him. Sure. So I think who they are is unimportant. They tee it up so he can then give the, the ethic 26. I tell you to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, which he's repeated from 818. So this is clearly a, a repeated ethic of Jesus. He doesn't just teach this here, he teaches this in other places. And so that's really the emphasis of, of this. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't get too hung up. The only question of why I want to rule out the townspeople is there was one person over... You've got to be careful when things sound good. They're like, they're shocked at grace. The unbelieving heart is always shocked at God's grace. And he was trying to say it's the townspeople. And like, they're just, you know, like, mm, they have to get summoned. So it's weird if they're there. I mean, I suppose maybe some of the townspeople are there. It's yeah, it really, honestly, it was not a question of mine. But it was Linda's, so I thought, hey, that doesn't I, I got you. Yeah. It's just, that's, yeah. that's your shepherding heart, Al. You're just like, I'll come alongside. But you. since I've got the mic, I do have oh, another question. Oh, okay, okay. So you... You were talking about the the first servant that did well, and that basically Christ kept the one mina, and the ten that he made, he did not keep. Yeah. Gave him, so I, I understand your thinking and logic, but how do you deduct that, that that was probably the way it was? Well, he says in verse, uh, where is it, verse... 15, 16. 16. 16. Mm-hmm. The first came and said, Lord, your mina has made 10 more. So mm-hmm. one mina made 10 additional minas. How many minas you got? Mm-hmm. 11 minas. Sure. How many minas does this guy have in verse uh, 25? 10. Conclusion, the master took one back that let him keep the profit. That's the logic. It's not stated, but we know he had 11, and then we know he has 10. I, mean, I suppose he went and spent it or something, but, but I think most likely he gave back the, the principal and was allowed to keep the profit he made, presumably to continue mm-hmm. working on his mm-hmm. master's interests, but, but uh, that's, okay. that's my assumption. I think it's the best explanation for how you go to 11 to 10. Yeah, I think, I think that, I mean, 
I think until you get to verse 25, that probably doesn't make that real clear. But um, yeah. And I think that proves the slaves, the servants' accusation false. This guy doesn't reap where he doesn't sow. This guy isn't, you know, or I'll take that and I'll take that and thank you very much. This guy's left with 10 and 10 cities. So, yeah. Oh, to, oh sorry. Go. Carol's wants to go after you, Al, but finish, finish, Al. Oh, I can't give it to him yet. No. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> no, just one other comment. It, it, you know, it's interesting um, talking about this that we, you know, faithful servants will rule with Christ over, over cities or however that really looks. I don't know. What will we be doing ruling? And the other question is that just comes to mind in, in today's world is well, some of us really wouldn't want to rule over a city. <laughs> I mean, I, I get the imagery, but it, it's like, I don't want to be in charge of a city. You know, I don't, what, so what does that, you know, if how does you that want look? to turn Jesus down, that's your business. <laughs> it's your business. No. But it sure, all I'm trying to get at, like, as you're trying to figure out what will life in the millennial kingdom look like, sure. I don't really know. Um, Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Christ will rule with co-regents. We'll judge ain't Like, how's about this? You, do you love this one? Paul's talking about believers not suing each other. Like, don't take each other to court. Aren't there people of some standing in the church who could take it before? Do you not know you're going to judge angels? Nope, I hadn't really thought about that one, Paul. He sort of throws it out as like an aside. Yeah. We're going to judge angels, Al. No, I, 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 take, I take it that if we've been faithful and we yeah. are in heaven, that yeah. that all that part will be taken care of. Don't quite know how that works, right? But that'll be taken care of. But it's just interesting as you no. go through some of that stuff. No, that, that there's. I mean, well, it's even like in the eternal state. There's a the tree of life is in the New Jerusalem with leaves for the healing of the nations. Why nations in the eternal state need healing? I don't know. But stuff's going on. In other words, if we picture the eternal state as we're all just sitting around in a cloud in one big worship service, there's activity, there's work. The first, the earth God made before the fall, there is work to be done. I suspect there will be work to do. I believe it'll be a joy to do. You know, the ground won't be reaping up thistles and by the sweat of your brow. That's all part of the curse. The, the pain in work is, is um, not the original intent. But there'll be stuff to do. And clearly there's something to go. All I'm trying to say is, even when you get to Revelation, it still seems like a literal promise. So it, as far as I can track it, as long as I can pull the thread before it goes under the door into the next room and I can't follow it, it looks like we're raining with them. Beyond that, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of detail about that. I mean, I suppose I could write a series of Christian fiction. You know, okay, um, I'll, I'll make one other comment, then I'll give it to Carol. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, you know, and then you start, if, if you go down that road, then... There, over these centuries here, appears to me there's going to be a lot of believers. If we're going to be ruling over a lot of cities, there's going to be a lot of cities. Yeah. Um, you know, so it just, again, trying to, if you're taking it literal like yeah. that, it's an interesting picture and hard to wrap your mind around. Well, the cities part might not be literal because what we get in Act, what we get in Revelation, these are the two promises. Um, Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. So there's some level of authority. And then to the one who conquers, Revelation 3.21, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat on my father's throne. This is some picture of co-regency, co-rule. So the language of cities 
is not at present. But he does tell the 12 disciples, you're going to sit on 12 thrones and dwell with the 12 tribes. So I, I don't know. And there's, once you throw angelic beings into the mix, you got a lot more people to govern, in essence. I don't know. But you, you've been talking to the Latter-day Saints. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Sorry. Carol. Okay. Um, in Matthew 25, uh, there's the parable of the talents. And uh, I've listened several times to a really great sermon by D.A. Carson, whose Ooh. conclusion is, in that context, while we wait for Jesus, we should be our goal should be to increase the master, master's assets, okay? And, of course, that, the talents, as you pointed out, are much, much larger sums of money, huge sums of money. Right. Okay, now we have this one. So are, are you saying that, that Jesus used the same parable in different situations with different people and intertwined different concepts in order to teach something slightly different? Yes. I'm saying that Jesus took... A parable, make, shifting the details to emphasize and highlight different points. In the, the par- I haven't studied, I mean, I'm sure D.A. Carson go with what he said, but uh, it, with, the, with the talents, there is an emphasis on a huge amount of money. And, um, and so the emphasis may well be there on increase and growing it, making it bigger. I'm just saying, arguing that in Luke, because it's a more meager sum, and even though the ESV makes it sound like the master wants to know what you made, the emphasis is on what have you done with it. That it and the, the incommensurate reward with the object. That here's a test of faithfulness. Oh, you were faithful? Okay, and I'm going to give you some huge responsibilities. That, that seems to be the shift. The contrast between a, a, a mina and a city is huge. It wouldn't nearly be as big if it was a talent and a city the amount of money. So I think Luke, Jesus in telling this is trying to contrast an insignificant sum, large for business purposes, insignificant, with a massively incommensurate reward. And so the emphasis being on the faithfulness. But but is that, am I answering your question or am I just sort of stuttering? Okay. If If you go back to chapter eight of Luke, And again, I, I want to make it clear, I don't think the emphasis is on how shrewd and how savvy these servants are, because uh, as if we're to think, man, the one with 10, really, just, he must have been a business genius. When Jesus gives the parable of the soils, um, in chapter 8, when I find it, where's that? 7. No, that's 8. 8. There we go. All right. So... Um, Look at verse 8. Some fell on good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Now, no crop that I'm aware of yields a hundredfold. I could be wrong. But this is meant to be over-the-top hyperbolic results. And in other places, Jesus talks about some five times 50, some a hundredfold. That God's going to determine the results of your faithfulness. It will be surprising. Even a fivefold return is unexpected. No one's got. I mean, you're you're hard pressed to get interest nowadays matching um, inflation, right? I mean, what investment reaps fivefold returns that isn't super risky? And then some commentators, these guys are taking risks with the market. No, I don't think that's the point. The point is they're faithful, and in their faithfulness, amazing things happened. And disciples, if you'll just Buckle down and be faithful, and faithful with little things. 
you'll be amazed at the results that has that God does with that. You know, I, I think that's the direction the parable's going in. But yeah. Oh, we got someone else? I can either clear up a few little things or go on. Do it. Go for it, sir. Um, yesterday my wife told me that it was okay to get a windfall as long as you tithe and then you can keep the rest of the money. So I think what happened with the 11 minas was he tithed one of them. Ah, that's probably, that's probably it. Um, I appreciate the clarity of your teaching. Um, it leaves me clearly confused. Oh, okay. And it was kind of what Al ended with. Why do we need a government in heaven when we have a Lord and Savior on the throne whose glory lights up the whole place? Well, but then I think if he would let somebody like me in, he would definitely need some governing. <laughs> well, let me, let me take a swing at that for a moment. I, I think that comes from the notion and... I got to be careful. Don't don't misread me as some Marxist or something. I'm by no means, but I think there's something hardwired into us that distrusts and is suspicious of and thinks authority is inherently bad. And certainly with human authority, that is regularly the case. You know, authority corrupts. Absolute authority corrupts absolutely. And so we look at rules and authority, submission and structure. In unless we're careful, we look at it. Is negative. In God's case, we give him a pass because he's God, so it's got to be okay. In the garden, before the fall, there was headship. It pleased God to make two image bearers who are equal. And yet, and Paul argues in 1 Timothy 2, why he won't allow women to teach and have authority over men. He argues creation order as pre-fall. So the, the structure of, of authority, of, of equality, and yet um, subordination is pre-fall. In the very Godhead, we see equality and subordination. The Father sends. The Spirit isn't sending pe- the, the Father. The Son says, it's my pleasure always to do the Father's will. So in the Godhead, you've got three persons, one God, in equality of being, but in ordered, in economic terms, there's an ordering. And it pleases God in his creation to do the same thing. It, it evidences his glory. It pleases him. I mean, the little subtle things you pick up from the Genesis account, God didn't just make the heavens and the earth and make man. He said, let us make man in our own image, then he made man. Here's a God who plans and purposes what he will do and takes counsel with himself. And so, yes, God could simply say, everyone's sinless, and I'm on the throne. Go do as you please. That is not what pleased God to do, and it wasn't what God pleased to do in the garden. The man and the woman had work to do. They had responsibilities. Adam was given a help meet. So even pre-sin, there's structure, there's purpose, there's order. So I'm not surprised when I see something similar in the eternal state. What that'll absolutely look like, I know not. But I suspect most of our notions of why do we still need authority and why do we still need structure comes from our assumption from years and years of living with sinful authority that it's always bad. But it's not always bad. So I don't, 
go further, but that's, that's my initial salvo. So we frequently run into these philosophical foils that, uh, to my mind, can't make sense. Okay. And yet you say it's clearly stated both ways at the same time. When I object to that, uh, is that the grumbling person, the disbeliever, the, the one working against the ruler? That's that what it feels well, like. That all depends on how you come, right? So two different men ask a very similar question of God and get very different responses, okay? So Habakkuk asks God, why is there so much evil and why aren't you dealing with Israel? And God comes and he answers him, doesn't rebuke him, says, I'm going to raise up Babylon to punish Israel and I'm going to deal with this. And Habakkuk says, whoa, okay. (laughs) Job asks a similar question. Job does it a little bit differently. He wants to call God to court. He doesn't start out there. But by the end of his, uh, his exchange with his interlocutors, he, he wants to call God to court. He's lamenting the fact that he doesn't have an attorney. He's God, so I can't call him to court, but I'd like to call him to court. In other words, God, you got some explaining to do. And God shows up and just blasts Job. I mean, he eventually restores him, but it's who on earth do you think you... Where were you when I made the stars, Job? Answer me. And Job tries to get out of it a couple of times. I put my hand over my mouth. Nope. Gird up your loins like a man. Answer me. I'm not done yet. Where were you? And he just keeps going. So we can ask questions. It's the difference between my child coming to me saying, Dad, why are we doing this? I don't understand. And a child saying, we've all heard this. You can't do Mommy said that I could, and they're talking to you like you've got a reckoning to do. If you're, I don't know from your speech, I, I, I don't hear anything belligerent. If you're asking like the child, I don't understand, Father. This is confusing. You're in good company. Like, praise God. That's cool. If you're saying, God, you got some explaining to do, then, yeah, that's not good. But I, I don't know the state of your heart. Nothing you said clearly sounds like the, the latter. So, Jim wants to say something. He needs a microphone, though. The six people listening on the road right now. Jim needs a microphone. Sometimes in Scripture, the parables or other places talk about things in the future, and sometimes I have trouble differentiating the millennial kingdom mm-hmm. from the eternal kingdom. Well, that's, that's a good distinction. Actually, and this goes to your question, Steve. I do think it's help more easier understood the authority in the kingdom. Our, our understanding, um, what I mean by R is what's written into our statement of faith of this church my understanding of the Bible, and, and good Christians disagree in their reading of eschatology, here are the big events that are coming, okay? So Christ returns to earth, the current earth, and he sets up a kingdom. In that kingdom, the fall is restrained but not removed. So in Isaiah 53, we hear about how if someone dies at 100 years old, they'll be considered accursed and a youth. And the wolf will eat hay, and the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the child will put his hand in the, in, the, in the hole of the snake. And so a lot of the things that we see in the fall are restrained, but not ultimately removed. During that time, sinful people will live in the kingdom, and they will absolutely need governing. Okay? 
This is the time period I believe Psalm 2 speaks of, where the sun will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That kingdom will end with Satan being unbound, deceive the nations, and they will try to fight God again. Then, after that showdown, and, and um, the, that's, I believe, where the battle of um, Armageddon happens, um, or Gog and Magog, um, then the present earth is done away with, and he makes a new heavens and a new earth. And I'm not aware of any promises of reigning in that period. So all of the reigning that I'm aware of takes place during the millennial reign of Christ, as we understand it, with sinful people who can die and will ultimately, at the end of it, revolt, being governed. So I think it's easier to see the need for governance when you're dealing with fallen people in that period than you are afterwards. And eschatology is a complicated topic. I'm just telling you, as, as our, my reading of it, the, the leadership of the church's reading of it, the historic reading of this church, good people are on different pages with that. I was even making my all-mill joke this morning, but um, there's a little bit of truth to the joke, but you know, um, it's okay. But, that, but that, that, I think, helps it as well. What Jim's pointing out is I'm not aware of reigning and governances and, and that type of thing after the kingdom. But I don't know if that helps or further muddies the water. But that's, I thought that was helpful, Jim. Thanks. You got five minutes. One more. Candy Jackson. Um, I have a quick question back to the talents. I always yeah. read all of these talent parables as that was people, not money. And it's us doing what God's called us to do, make disciples of all nations. So is that not the talents we're sharing that he gives us? To what he gives us, we are to go back out and tell others about him. I mean, because he doesn't care if we have money. We don't need money. Sure. I mean, I, no, it, you got a parable, and the parable is like parallel lines. You lay the parable down against reality, and at some points, the parallels line up. So in the parable, they're given money. No question about it. They're given money, and they make money. In reality, I think the corollary would be, where does the New Testament speak of Christ gifting his people? Well, I view that as the spiritual gifts. If you go to, uh, go to Ephesians 4. I think it was in the notes, but I was long-winded, so we didn't get there. Um, but in Ephesians 4, we get very similar language of a king receiving a kingdom and then giving out gifts, which is very similar language. Um, we get to Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians. Okay. 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 So if we go to verse 7 of chapter 4. By, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there's been a gift of grace given to each one of us. And then he quotes the psalm. 68, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So the picture is a victorious king who's freed people, and he's got them in his train, and as he returns victorious in battle with these freed people, he's giving gifts. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who ascended is the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave, what are these gifts of grace that were given? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints 
for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So I'd say part of the work of the ministry, the building of the body of Christ, is evangelizing. Part of it is raising your kids. Part of it is speaking the truth to your neighbor. So, so yeah, he's not giving us money. In, in, in the church's point of view, it's not God's given each of you some money and make sure you put it on the plate. God's given you grace gifts to advance his kingdom. Be faithful with them. You say, okay, how, where? Well, depending on your circumstance, that's going to look different. You know, there's some things that are not optional, like parents' responsibilities to children, not optional. Husbands' responsibilities to wives, not optional. Other things, there's a lot of freedom. You know, one person, I want to go witness to the homeless people in Des Moines. God bless you. Awesome. I want to labor in teaching a Sunday school class. Fantastic. And the emphasis in the parable is be doing the work. Take what God's given you, put it into the, the analogy is the marketplace. Here, use it and see what God grows it into. So, yeah, this isn't money, but I wouldn't just limit it to witnessing and disciples. It's Whatever you want to qualify as God's grace gifts to you given for the work of the ministry, those things. So for me, part of that is, you know, this body recognized to some degree a gifting and teaching. So I'm trying to use that gift to build up the body. That's not the only thing I'm doing. I'm trying to do other things as well. And there, someone could devote themselves to prayer. We went with their widows in the, who are devoting themselves to the saints in prayers. That's work. Fantastic. Those are the types of people that I expect to outshine others in heaven. You know, who's that? That's the faithful widow who for, like Anna, the prophetess in the temple, who since she was married for seven years and then lived like 42 years as a widow, and all she did is pray and serve in the temple. I think there's going to be all sorts of quiet people that history didn't make much of that are, whoa, look at what they made with their talent, right? But the emphasis is just be faithful. Just be faithful what's in front of you. And part of that is, is as opposed to, and I'll close with this, I've met some people, I, I can be guilty, that's why I use the example of, I wasn't planning on it, it came to me in the moment, to justify faithlessness in small things, because i got big things on my mind. I can't be bothered, well, Greg Sweet said it best, he gave me a critique in my early years here. I, see, I listen, Greg, I pay attention. He said, Jeremy, you make your list and you prioritize it. But those things that didn't make it high enough to get done today, rather than being put to the top of tomorrow's list, you make tomorrow's list and prioritize it so the same thing could be at the bottom six days in a row and never gotten to. That's a pretty fair description, I think. And so you look through, like, okay, I got to make sure I talk to this person, and I certainly have to finish work on this sermon. And for six days running, the thing at the 12th thing down on the list doesn't get done. You know, and man, if you're not faithful little things, don't talk to me about being faithful big things. I mean, I've talked to people who justify negligence of responsibilities now because once I get that promotion or once the business takes off, then I'll be able to get some stuff done in ministry. Then I'll be able to devote my time. I've never seen that happen. I've never seen the person who neglected you know, their home, their family, church, because they were, just let me get this thing going, and then... never. Maybe it does happen. I've never seen it. What I have seen is people like the, um, the Macedonians be faithful with very little and God honor that and keep giving more and more and more and more. So I think this parable works against the notion to get out there. I mean, sometimes people will ask me, I'll talk to other pastors, you know, what's your eight-year vision for the church? I want to be faithful. I don't really have much more than that. Like the Lord keeps putting stuff on our plates and we got enough to deal with and we work with and we work with what's in front of us. But beyond the next step or two, 
I don't know if Greg and Al got some plans, but when we're talking our elder meetings, we're dealing with the, the issues in ministry now, what's right in front of us, and the concern is we just want to be faithful, and if we're just focusing on that, we'll let the Lord determine how broad our ministry goes. We'll just try to go deep and let the Lord worry about that. So when I hear other, and I'm not trying to condemn them, but when I hear other people talk about well, you got to get a 10-year vision, I, I just don't think that way. I just, I just want to not shipwreck my ministry. I want to be faithful. I want to get to the end and not have screwed things up. Like that's really about as far as my aspirations go. And I'm confident that if, if I can do that, if we can do that, the Lord's going to get his stuff done. He's not going to be like, you wicked servant, you were faithful, but you didn't have a big long-term vision for your community. I'm like, it'll be okay. You know, um, anyway, we, we're at time now. I will uh, let you guys go. Thank you very much. God bless.